You should have some notes there uh, for you on the table. The, uh, the portion does cover from uh, Numbers 8 through Numbers 12, uh, verse 16. It is, once again, it is a large section. <clears throat> it would be uh, my way I would try to pronounce this would be Baha Alatka. Um, <clears throat> and it, it stands for, or the, that's the Hebrew word there for, uh, it says, when you set up. And so this whole portion starts with <clears throat> Aaron being told how he is to set up the lamps on the menorah. And I've got it for you again here, these first four verses from the Scriptures version, uh, simply because, once again, it's, it's got God's name in there, and it's just, uh, I like the way it reads. So I want to read this part, and then we'll uh, open our time in prayer. Amen. It says, So Yahovah spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and say to him, When you set up the lamps, let the seven lamps give light in front of the lampstand. And Aaron did so. He set up the lamps to face toward the front of the lampstand as Yahweh commanded Moshe. And this is the work of the lampstand between the work of gold from its base to its blossoms. It is a beaten work according to the pattern which Yahweh has shown Moshe. So he made the lampstand. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, love you very much. Thank you so much for loving us, being gracious, patient. Uh, forgiving, loving, and kind. Lord, thank you so much for your word, and I pray that you would cause it to come to life for us as we read it, as we study it. Uh, Lord, I pray that it would be more than intellectual knowledge. Lord, I pray that it would literally change our lives, would be changed from the inside out, and we would live our lives in such a way that it really would bring glory and honor to your name. And we pray all this in the name of our Savior, Yeshua the Messiah. Amen. So <clears throat> it says that when you set up the lamps... Uh, this is how you're to do it, <clears throat> and there's some interesting things about this uh, as we're going to march through this whole section, and I hope thematically it's going to really make a lot of sense, but uh, the kids here have uh, some drawings that they can color in, and I was talking to them beforehand if they knew what that was. It's the menorah, and I really like the way they have it set up because literally there are seven <clears throat> lamps on there. They're all pointed towards the middle, and the middle lamp is called the shamash, which it, it's where all the other oil uh, for the other lamps come from. And so that's why it says that the, that the, <clears throat> the seven lamps give light in front of the lamp stand. That's what it's talking about, because they're all, they were supposed to be bent towards the middle. And we know that uh, between the menorah and a lot of other things that's in the, in the scriptures, that it points to Christ, it points to the Messiah. And here's the interesting thing about this whole concept of Aaron doing this work. Keep in mind, this is after his boys have died. Uh, there's been a lot that has gone on. We've got the golden calf incident, which uh, is not good. <clears throat> and Aaron is given the job to take care of the menorah. But what we forget is where the menorah was. The menorah was in the holy place. It, was out, it was in, wasn't out in the courtyard of the tabernacle. 99.9% of the Israelites never saw it lit. This was something that Aaron was doing, <clears throat> and uh, the rabbis say that he did it the rest of his life incredibly reverently. Um, 
knowing that the main purpose of the menorah was to give light within the Holy of Holies. You have to get into, maybe try to get into Aaron's mindset. Here's a guy that fashioned the golden calf. God's given him an incredible task, exceedingly important, seen by almost no one. We put so much emphasis on the flash and what men see as being so important. Yet God specifically tells tells Aaron, this is how you're to do this. This is how this is to be made. This is how the lamps are to be bent. This is how this is supposed to be giving its light. This is supposed to be taken care of continually. And Aaron, this is in your charge. The guy that made the golden calf. I can imagine that for the rest of his life, he was humbled. And terrified at the same time. Anybody here other than me have a pile of regrets? And you just go, I don't know how I could be so stupid. Just done so many dumb things. And when it comes to following God and still just doing dumb things, and you think, you know, how, how could I do that? And yet, God is so gracious and loving and kind. In the midst of that, we're going to march through here and see some unbelievable things that happened. As the people are going through the wilderness, <clears throat> and they do some dumb things, um, and God deals with it rather harshly. I want you to see something here in this same chapter, in Numbers chapter 8, as, as we continue on. From here on out, I think I've got this in the ESV, the English Standard Version. And I want you to see something because <clears throat> in verse 16, it says, it's, now it's talking about the Levites. I'm having to jump a little bit here because there's something thematic in these, in these passages that are, is so powerful. In verse 16, it says, they are wholly given to me from among the people of Israel. Look at this instead of all who open the womb. You remember last when we talked about that, about how God's this perfect accountant and that at Mount Sinai, about 3,000 died. And then at Pentecost, which was a reenactment of Mount Sinai, about 3,000 were added. And God's got a perfect ledger and he will not lose one. His ledger will balance out. And remember we talked also about... <clears throat> that because of killing of the firstborn in Egypt, then he dedicated the firstborn of Israel to himself to serve him. There was a problem, the golden calf. And the people rebelled, kind of twisted Aaron's arm. He makes the golden calf. Moses comes down off the mountain, you know, throws the tablets, all that kind of stuff. What Cecil B. DeMille doesn't show you is that God basically used the Levites to destroy those 3,000, about 3,000 souls that rebelled against him. And it says that they literally bought with their service, some of them might have even killed family members that had rebelled against God. And because of that, they became priests, 
servants of God. And this is where he's making this reference back to that event is what I'm trying to get you to see. So that instead of just the firstborn, God transferred it from the firstborn of all of Egypt to the Levites. The reason it was transferred was because of the golden calf issue. I could stay right there for the next hour and a half. We need to understand that the things we do on this earth have implications, people. And it does echo literally into eternity. He wants us to serve Him. He wants us to be obedient, but it's not just obedience. But when we do rebel, it doesn't mean that you get kicked out of heaven. It does mean that there can be alterations made, (laughs) if that makes sense, okay? So here's where he says, instead of all who open the womb, the firstborn of all the people of Israel, I have taken them for myself. All of the firstborn among the people of Israel are mine, both both man and of beast. On the day that I struck down all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, I consecrated them for myself. And I have taken the Levites instead of all the firstborn among the people of Israel. So then you jump to verse 19, the very next verse. And it says, And I have given the Levites as a gift to Aaron and his sons from among the people of Israel. Look at this. To do the service for the people of Israel at the tent of meeting and to make atonement for the people of Israel. Here's the the other concept about this that we have a tendency to, because we read the scriptures too quickly and we already have pictures in our minds, therefore we miss the words that are there and we read over things just simply too fast. We miss the part here where it says, these Levites, even though they belong to God, they're a gift to Aaron and his sons to help do what? Service for the people of Israel. We think of this as just too one-sided. And we think of God's rules and his laws and all that in the negative, and they're not, they're in the positive. We can see this as if we would march through this and just dive into just that one concept, but it's in here. The idea is this. There's the tabernacle. It's where God dwells. God is calling the people of Israel to come before him. There's all of these rules and policies, if you will, that people have to follow before they can come before a holy God when they have the possibility to sin. And God marshals them as an army to serve themselves. Watch this, to keep them from dying. He doesn't want anyone to die and he doesn't want to kill anyone. But when we rebel or when we come before him in our sinfulness, even when he's calling us to come before him, if we do it wrong, it can cost you your life, not your soul, your life. You understand that? And so he's having all this done, he says, because it's a service to the people of Israel. Look at this. Because he goes on and he says, at the tent of meeting and to make atonement for the people of Israel, then I highlighted this for you in your notes so that you can see this clearly. That there may be no plague among the people of Israel when the people of Israel come near the sanctuary. It can't be any more plain. It's in black and white. It's in English. You don't even have to get into the original text and the the languages to understand this. It says what it says. 
<coughs> and he's saying, I want you to be able to do this, and I'm giving these people to you so that when you come, there won't be a plague. He doesn't want there to be a plague, which is interesting because that's what's about to happen. It's really sad. So you stay in this chapter, in chapter 8, if you'll turn the page, you get down to verse 23, and it says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, This applies to the Levites from 25 years old and upward. They shall come to do the duty of the, in the service of the tent of meeting. And then there's a retirement deal here. Fascinating. <clears throat> he says, And from the age of 50 years, they shall withdraw from the duty of the service and serve no more. Look at this. I highlighted it again for you. They minister to their brothers. God is constantly trying to watch out for us because that's why the scripture calls us sheep. It's amazing. They minister to their brothers in the tent of meeting, watch this, by keeping guard. But they shall do no service. Thus shall you do to the Levites in assigning their duty. So here's the deal. <laughs> You had to be real meticulous about coming before God, allowing your brothers and sisters, what you know, the people of Israel to come before God. All this stuff had to be done the right way. Well, guess what they didn't have back then? They didn't have stuff like eyeglasses, um, hearing. If you ever notice me, like I'm fit, I'm 62. I get in a restaurant, even in here at times, you'll see me really leaning. And I'm not trying to fall over. I'm trying to hear. And no, I haven't gotten a hearing aid yet. <laughs> but I, I'm trying to hear because my hearing's not that good. Uh, <clears throat> we could go on and on. But here, I believe that's why God said, look, the young men are going to do this up to the age of 50. At 50, they're going to retire from that part of it. But then watch what they're going to do. They're going to serve as guards around the, around the, the tabernacle. Why, why would they need that? They're going to be there because they've got the age and the maturity, the wisdom from doing it for so long and surviving, right? And then able, <clears throat> when people are coming, they're able to sit there and go, whoa, 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 hold on. Not like that, you're not. <laughs> What, oh, you, you're not bringing that in here. What are you talking about? Well, go back and read again. You know, go, go back over here and, and, and talk to one of the Levites over here. I'm just telling you, you ain't bringing that in here. Uh, not on my watch. Uh, we would see that kind of stuff as negative or um, uh, God holding uh, favoritism and all, other, other, all this kind of weird stuff, and it's not. It's God saying, look, this is how this is going to work. I don't want anybody to die. And they're going to serve you and help you in this fashion because they're going to guard the tabernacle when people are coming. And the younger men that still have all of their facilities about them, they can still see well, they can hear better, they can lift. They're still uh, physically strong enough to do a lot of these things. Uh, so they're more capable of doing this stuff than the older guys, but the older guys have the wisdom and discernment, and they're able to stand out there and stand guard and hold guard and try to be a buffer so that things don't go south. You, you see that? <clears throat> now then, you get into chapter 9, 
This really is thematically all tied together. You're going to see something here that's amazing. So I'm just trying to get you to see there's all these rules, and the rules are there because God cares and loves and doesn't want anybody to die. You, you clear on that? That's pretty much what you see in chapter 8. In chapter 9, <coughs> excuse me, this is talking about the cloud by day and the fire by night and all that kind of stuff. Remember those stories uh, of, of the, the presence of God there and as he, as he would lead them? So in chapter, in chapter 9, starting with verse 15, it says, On the day that the tabernacle was set up, the cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of the testimony, and at evening, it was, cover, it, it was over the tabernacle like the appearance of fire until morning. It wasn't like it was an actual fire. It's the same cloud. People refer to that as the Shekinah glory of God, the very manifestation of the presence of God. It's the same cloud that covered Yeshua on what we call the Mount of Transfiguration. It's the same cloud that... Moses went into, and when he came out, it was literally dripping off of him, and they made him put a veil over his face because it scared him. They said, man, you don't look right. You need to cover that up, and it scared him. So he literally had to wear a veil over his face. <clears throat> it's that cloud that was leading them. Verse 16, so it was always the cloud covered it by day and the appearance of fire by night, and whenever the cloud lifted from over the tent, <coughs> excuse me, after that, the people of Israel set out, and in the place where the cloud settled down, there the people of Israel camped. Now then, <clears throat> I'm going to keep reading, and as I read, I want you to underline this phrase, at the command of the Lord, or kept the charge of the Lord. I want you to underline it right there on the page. If you remember, <clears throat> I'm trying to help us understand how to read our Bible, and read it. we're going to read it in going to read it in context. Also, when you see something repeated, pay attention. When you see it repeated maybe two or three times in close proximity, pay close attention. We'll wait till you see this. So <clears throat> starting at verse 18, it said, and underline it every time we read it, at the command of the Lord, the people of Israel set out, and at the command of the Lord, they camped. As long as the cloud rested over the tabernacle, they remained in camp. Even when the cloud continued over the tabernacle many days, the people of Israel kept the charge of the Lord and did not set out. Sometimes the cloud was a few days over the tabernacle, and according to the command of the Lord, they remained in camp. Then, according to the command of the Lord, they set out. And sometimes the cloud remained from evening till morning. And when the cloud lifted in the morning, they set out. Or if it continued for a day and a night, when the cloud lifted, they set out. Whether it's two days or a month or a longer time, that the cloud continued over the tabernacle abiding there, the people of Israel remained in the camp and did not set out. But when it lifted, they set out. At the command of the Lord, they camped. And at the command of the Lord, they set out. They kept the charge of the Lord at the command of the Lord by Moses. I believe it's in there eight times. In one small section, eight times. So that <clears throat> you think God wants us to pay attention. 
He's, it, it, it's real clear that when something is repeated, especially in close proximity, you need to pay special attention to what is being said there. And here we've got it over at least eight times in here where it says that at the command of the Lord, and they kept the command of the Lord, and here's what happened. When the cloud was over the tabernacle by day, they stayed at the camp at the command of the Lord. If the, if the <coughs> cloud that looked like fire at night was still over the camp, that's where they stayed. If it moved at night, they were moving at night. If it moved during the day, they moved that day. Wherever it went, that's where they went. And wherever it stopped, that's where they stopped. It says sometimes it was just an overnight thing from morning till evening, and then they're moving the next day. They estimate 2.5 million people. Yeah, they didn't have RVs. They didn't have a Hummer. They didn't have RVs. <clears throat> they were packing this stuff. I'm sure none of us here would complain after we spent the night setting up our tent that we wake up the next morning and the cloud is moving. None of us would complain, right? Oh, man. And you have to wonder sometimes if God didn't even do it just to see. Um, and we're going we're gonna to see that here in a second. <clears throat> they only moved when and where God moved. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. I got this passage in here in Exodus because this is a reference to what Moses prayed for in Exodus. We went through that when we started this, when we went through Exodus. You get to Exodus 33, starting at verse 14. It says, and he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And he said to him, now this is Moses. <coughs> if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. Now watch this. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? You might want to underline this next statement. Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct? Yeah. You see that? It's not bloodline. What makes them, what makes us distinct? The presence of God, period. Moses says, listen, if your presence is not going to go with us, then don't send me. This is how we are distinct from all the other nations is that your presence is with us. And I'm going to finish this. I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth. He goes, this is how we are distinct from all the other people on the face of the earth. The one way we are distinct is your presence with us. This is how we are distinct. This is how we are different. <coughs> it's not, it is not in a statement of faith. It is not in a bloodline. It is in the presence of God being with you. Period. Doesn't matter what you call yourself. If God's not there, then guess what? I'll say it in Texan slang. You ain't nothing. It doesn't matter what you think or what everybody else thinks. If God's not with you, well, then you ain't all that. And guess there's only one destination for you, and it's where God doesn't exist. 
Verse 17 in that passage is, And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do for you. I, I will do, for you have found favor in my sight. Look at this. And I know you by name. Yeah, wow. That's powerful, isn't it? It's pretty good to be known by God, to be known by name. And he knows us by name. It reminds me in Revelation how he's even, he's going to give us a name. Wow. And that when he blesses us, he does it by what? By placing his name on us. It goes on and on and on. <clears throat> so you get to chapter 10, and here it's talking about the trumpets. The reason this is important, because he goes over this and how it's linked to chapter 9. <clears throat> In verse 1, it says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Make two silver trumpets of hammered work, and you shall make them, and you shall use them for summoning the congregation and for breaking camp. So this whole chapter is going to talk about, <coughs> excuse me, still got this stuff I'm getting rid of. He's um, going to talk about these trumpets and how they're to use them to assemble people to camp, maybe even to the tabernacle, and for breaking camp. What did we just read? That wherever the presence of God went, that's where they went. If he didn't move, they didn't move. If you got 2.5 million people, part of the issue is getting word out, and one way they would do that would be with trumpets. This is one reason why we started our we have started starting our services with blowing the shofar. Really appreciate you doing that. Um, it's powerful, and they really say that the shofar is the closest sound that humans can make that resembles the very voice of God. It's what they heard on Mount Sinai when they understood the Ten Commandments. It's, it's powerful. Um, so it's used <clears throat> to summon the people, to call out to God, to praise God. Um, and here these silver trumpets are used to summon the congregation and for breaking camp. When you jump down to the end of this chapter, trust me, this, this is all going to make sense here in a minute. In verse 33, this is still the issue of them traveling around and God leading them. This is one statement in here that, you know, your Bible's filled with all kinds of weird stuff. Did you know that? Okay, well, I'm going to have to remind you all again when I ask a question. It's not about y'all just coming to listen to me. If I ask a question, it's okay to, to respond. Do you know that your Bible's got all kinds of weird stuff in it? Yes. Oh, okay, good. I just want to make sure that we're just we're communicating here. Y'all don't want to come to hear a lecture. <clears throat> so this is one of those areas where the Bible says something that's just kind of, was kind of odd. Um, verse 33, it says, So they set out from the Mount of the Lord three days' journey, and the ark of the covenant of the Lord went before them three days' journey to seek out a resting place for them. And the cloud of the Lord was over them by day whenever they set out from camp. And wherever the ark was sent out, Moses said, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. And when it rested, he said, Return, O Lord, to the ten thousand thousands of Israel. Anybody ever hear that before, let your enemies be scattered? 
We love quoting that one, right? The part we have a tendency to forget is what he's referring to because he's talking about the Ark of the Covenant also went out before them. I'm going to go ahead and tell you, I have no idea. I mean, you can read all kinds of interesting stuff about that, and this is what they, I mean, it says what it says, right? Bible says what it says. It says the Ark of the Covenant went out before them. Um, it's, just, it's just what happened. Um, but connected with that, this is where I want you to see Moses's attitude about the going and coming and resting. He said, God, I don't want to go anywhere unless you go with us, because this is how we are distinct and separate from all other people on the earth that are following these other fallen deities, these fallen angelic beings that we know as demons or these other gods, these other Elohim. You following me? <clears throat> and he says, so when the ark was going out, this, is, this was Moses' prayer, his praise, and his song. Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. That statement is bigger than you and I realize. And what he's par partially what he's saying is that, God, as you go forth before us, let your enemies that are out there be scattered. And in other words, it's a picture, if you will, of Moses seeing the ark and the cloud and the fire going in front of them. And he's saying, as you parted the Red Sea, part your enemies. Let them be scattered. It's powerful. Then when it rested, it was like... <clears throat> And Lord, return here, be with us, the 10,000 thousands of your people, Israel. It's like, cause your enemies to be scattered, Lord, but with that same power, protect us and be with us. That's huge. But the other part of this that's really bigger than I think we're comprehending is because he's making a statement. Every single other deity that's out there that's not on your side is your enemy and they hate you and hate what you're doing with us and there's a war raging so he's saying god when you go forward and we're following you let your enemy let your enemies be scattered he doesn't even talk about our enemies Didn't the Apostle Paul tell us that we, we battle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and every lofty thing lifted up against Christ? Other people are not your enemy. The demons that are empower them, empowering them are. Be very clear on that. It's not the people. Anybody here other than me been caught up in darkness and ignorance and just spiritual dumb stuff? Right? But God delivers us by his power and his might, wants us to be part of his family, follow him, go where he leads, do what he does, say what he says, be his ambassadors. And we don't have enemies here. We have enemies there. And our brethren that are in chains and in darkness, we need to do what we can to get them delivered. Share the truth with them. Lovingly, because all of us 
were sinners gone astray and God by his grace and mercy brought us into his family, right? All of that sounds great up to this point, right? Everything's going fantastic. And then we get to chapter 11. They're going before, I mean, stop and think about this before we even read it. <clears throat> They've gone through the parting of the Red Sea. They've been at Mount Sinai. They've had the golden calf issue. It's now been about a year. They've built the tabernacle. They've done all this stuff. Uh, they've got a pillar of fire at night. A pillar of a cloud by day. There's also an angel of the Lord that's there with them that they are following. It's not in this passage, but it's there with them. God tells them you're to follow him and do what he says because my name is in him. Powerful. You got the Ark of the Covenant moving around. I don't even know how to explain that one. Um, we got manna every day that we're eating. Uh, and it's just laying on the ground. You get up every morning, it's laying on the ground. Uh, and every Friday, there's a, a double portion. So you don't have to go out and pick it up on the Sabbath. Pretty cool. And then you get to chapter 11. And the people complained in the hearing of Yahovah. I'm going to say it the way it really is in the passage. In the hearing of Yahovah about their misfortunes. <laughs> Can anybody here other than me go, what, 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 <laughs> what, what? Uh, and then look at this. It says, and when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. Can somebody say, uh-oh, <clears throat> not good. Um, and then verse two, it says, then the people cried out to Moses and Moses prayed to the Lord <clears throat> And the fire died down. So the name of that place was called Tibera because the fire of the Lord burned among them. This is where you have to keep reading. That's why I say all the time, we're going to read our Bible in, and you guys are real good about, we read it in what? We read it in context. So you go, so how in the world is this, po how is it possible they could go through all this, the golden calf issue. They've spent a year building the tabernacle. They got food on the ground every morning. They got a pillar of fire, a cloud, an angel of God. They see God moving and working, and they're out there belly aching. Well, if you keep reading, you get to verse 4. It says, now the rabble that was among them had a Strong craving. If, you, if I were to have given this to you in the scriptures version, it doesn't use the word rabble, but it uses this term, mixed multitude. And you can see the proof of that when you keep reading it in context, even with this version, because the next sentence says, and the people of Israel also wept again and said, oh, that we had meat to eat. 
we remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up and there's nothing at all but this manna to look at. So who started that? The mixed multitude did. The mixed multitude that came out of Egypt with them, that was at the base of Mount Sinai, this mixed multitude from all the other nations that were also some of them slaves there in Egypt, even some Egyptians, left with them. Why? Well, because there was a war between the gods of Egypt and the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Yahovah won without trying. Everybody wants to be on the winning team. Egypt, watch this, was decimated. Decimated. <clears throat> the firstborn of Egypt all died. Their crops, their herds, flocks, everything destroyed. There was the lice and the hail and all the darkness and all this stuff that broke out with all those plagues and they were economically and militarily decimated. Many people just said, I'm getting out of Dodge. This is crazy. You guys have a God that won. I'm going with y'all. Right? Nothing wrong with that, but here's the problem. If you're following God for the benefits, and that's the main reason you're probably going to have a problem. If you're just claiming to be a believer because of all the benefits you're going to get, well, there's going to be a problem. Because you see, the greatest commandment in all of Scripture is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. On these two hang all of the law and the prophets. That's what Yeshua said. The greatest commandment is to love God with every ounce of energy within us, spiritual, mental, and physical. To do everything in our lives to bring glory and honor to his name, period. And God will prove the heart of every single one of us. So they're going around out in the wilderness God's blessing them and taking care of them, for crying out loud. It's about 2, 2.5 million people. That's not an easy task just to feed and water them on a daily basis. Just the logistics is an absolute nightmare. And they're in the wilderness. I showed you the picture not that long ago where they actually found the rock that split open. And they can tell that it is water erosion that came out of the rock, and it's in the middle of the stinking desert out there. It's huge. It's massive. God's doing all these miracles for them. But there's a lot of people that are there for the ride. They're only there for the ride. They're not there because they're committed to God Almighty. Even Israelites are not there because they're committed to God Almighty. There's even a lot of those that are there for the ride. But what happens is <clears throat> there are those among them that said at the base of Mount Sinai, they said it, everything you have said 
We will do and we will keep. Remember us talking about that? They moved into the marriage covenant relationship with God Almighty there. The Ten Commandments is the marriage contract. They moved into that relationship. It's a legal contract. They said, we will do it. He said, I will be your God. You will be my people. You're going to be a light to the nations. Those same people said it. They had, if you will, they had a conversion experience. Met God and said, you will now be my God. Everything you say, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do whatever you say. But you know what? That manna stuff. I'm, mm, nah, mm, nah. I'm, you know what? I'm kind of tired of manna. I didn't know this until studying for this. I thought it was, you know, more like bread. But you know that there's a term. I don't think I've got it in the passages for you here. Uh, of what it's called, uh, and the best they can come up with is like a resin, like gum. Yeah. So it tastes like coriander seed. So in other words, it wasn't just um, marshmallows or something. You know, I, I don't know. It wasn't some just, you know, flaky snow stuff. Yeah, I know marshmallows have pig in them. That wouldn't work, does it? Uh, Anyways, <laughs> um, it had some other consistency to it, uh, something like a, a resin or a, a gummy kind of uh, substance to it. And they would take this stuff, they would make a lot of stuff out of it, and they would literally find a way to make bread, it says, this bread that came out of heaven. Um, and they got tired of eating it. Anybody here ever get tired of eating the same kind of food all the time? Man, y'all snapped off quick at that one. Thanks. The one thing I never get tired of eating is Mexican food. I really think I could eat it seven days a week, probably about three times a day. I don't know. Um, there's no telling how many gazillion gallons of hot sauce I've had in my life. Um, but uh, they got tired of eating manna. They got tired of seeing it, and they start complaining. The interesting thing here, it says that they complained and God could hear them. He got so mad, he starts killing them immediately. It says on the outskirts, he starts killing them. Why is that important? Well, we didn't, we didn't dig into this, but if you look at the map and the layout of the tribes, they had specific places if you were part of the mixed multitude that hadn't connected yet with a tribe, where would you be? Yeah. On the outskirts because you don't know where you belong yet. And they're just getting started. And we're already told that it was this rabble, this mixed multitude that started this. And that's where God's judgment starts. But here's the bad part. It says that even Israel also began to weep and say the same things. So here's the deal. You, may, you need to pay special attention to what you're listening to. And watch this. Who you are letting influence you. Because they are. And if it's not based on the word of God, run. Run. Look, we don't have time to play any more games. It's coming to the end quick, and it's heating up, and it will heat up even more 
the, the insanity you're seeing in the news, there's nothing compared to what's coming. Nothing. So um, if it's not based on the word of God, period, you need to run from it. I mean, God's word is truth. We got a lot of opinions. God's word is truth. And our lives need to be based on what God says, period. Now watch this. He will tell us to do something sometimes so that we can even prove it to ourselves. You know what? I do love God more than I love my food. I do love God more than I love my air conditioning. I do love God more than I love anything. Because God already knows our heart. But you don't know how strong a rope is until you're swinging from it trying to get up that cliff. It looks good sitting on the shelf. But if bugs have been eating on it, you're in a deep of trouble. You're in a world of trouble. If you're going to be depending on that thing to, to keep you from falling. A lot of times the Lord will let us go through tough times to try us and to get the junk out, which is exactly what's happening in the wilderness. It was easy to get out of Egypt. It is difficult to get Egypt out of us. Because we've got a lifetime of living in Egypt. We've got a lifetime of us being Americans. And we probably worship America more than we worship God. I'm just saying. I mean, would we be willing to give up on America for God? Now, I'm going to be real honest and transparent here. It's real easy to say that sitting here with air conditioning working. But would we really be willing to turn our back on our heritage for God himself. I would like to think that I would. I'm going to sit here and say, I would. And then in my heart, I'm going to say, I hope I will. Because you don't know until you're faced with it, right? You don't know until you're really faced with that decision, what decision you're going to make. It's getting easier the older I get because the older you get, you go, hey, what else have I got? I got, you know, however many years left. Let's just go do this thing. Seriously. Um, but um, they were looking back and they wanted to go back to Egypt. And God would have none of it. And they're sitting there talking about, man, their strength is dried up. We've got nothing to look at but this manna. Can you imagine? You know what, God? We ain't got nothing to look at except with this stuff you're giving us. No wonder he got mad. You kidding me? I'm giving you food from heaven for crying out loud. It's like, what in the world is wrong with you? Oh, it is the world that's wrong with you. Let's continue on. I'm going to run way out of time. You get uh, to <clears throat> verse 26. This is fascinating, absolutely fascinating. And I want to, when we get to this next page, you're going to see how this all folds together. So later on in this chapter is where um, Moses, God shows him that he needs other people to help him. So he calls together the elders, the leaders of Israel, and God literally takes Moses and takes part of the spirit that's on Moses and takes pieces of that spirit, 
placing it on these other men to help lead the people. That's a pretty cool thing, right? Then you get to verse 26. Now, two men remained in the camp, one named Eldad and the other named Medad, and the Spirit rested on them. They were among those registered, but they had not gone out to the tent. So they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth. Pay attention to that. This is Joshua. He's going to end up leading the people into the promised land. Joshua, you know, Joshua and Caleb, Joshua. He comes up to him and he says, my Lord Moses, stop them. Amazing. Verse 29, but Moses said to him, are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. Which ended up happening, right? So, <clears throat> the people in the camp are going to Moses and say, whoa, 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 you got some guys over here prophesying, dude. They're, they're not following proper protocol. They're out, they're out here prophesying. Joshua, Moses' very own assistant, comes up to, you need to tell them to stop. And Moses like, you don't even get it, do you? Man, I wish that the Spirit of God would pour out on everybody and that all God's people would be prophets. Now, here's what I want you to see. This story about Eldad and Medad, anybody hear those names before? <clears throat> you know why? This is the only place you're going to find it. And you know what else? We don't know anything about them. We do know that Eldad means loved of God. Medad would mean beloved, basically. That's all we know. <clears throat> out of all the people of God <clears throat> that are there, and the Spirit of God's been poured out on them, two remain and are prophesying. Why two? Why not 10? Why not 20? Why not 30? Why not five? Why not seven? You answered the, did you answer the question? Revelation, the two witnesses. And we're going to get to that. And it's all tied together. It is absolutely amazing. You see, there is nothing in your Bible by accident. This is not a filler part of the story. God doesn't need a set number of words to get his essay in. This stuff is in here for a reason. Why? Because what has happened will happen. The exact same stuff. So then, in other words, this story is like stuck in the middle of their complaining. That's what I want you to see. This plague that breaks out, this story of Eldad and Medad is just kind of stuck in the middle. All of a sudden, you got this deal about the Spirit of God being poured out and Eldad and Medad. And Moses says, tell them, hey, Joshua, hush up, man. You know, the Spirit of God's on them. I, I wish everybody was prophesying. Then you get to verse 31, and now we're going to talk about the quail and the plague. This is finalizing the first part of this story about them complaining. You know, they said they complained because they didn't have anything to eat. 
So then God said, oh, that's what you want. You want meat. Is that, is that what it is? That's what you want. I'm going to send you some meat. It was a lot of meat. <clears throat> now, verse 31, it says, Then a wind from the Lord sprang up. The word there is ruach. It's like the very breath of God. The breath of God sprang up and it brought quail from the sea and let them fall beside the camp. About a day's journey on this side and a day's journey on the other side around the camp, all the way around the camp, one day's journey, as far as you could walk in one day. That's a few miles in both directions. Now watch this. About two cubits above the ground. That's three feet deep. God got mad. Oh, you want meat? I'm going to send you some meat and you're going to eat it. I'm going to give you exactly what you cried out for. You remember us talking about that not that long ago? Measure for measure. And the things that we desire, God goes, oh, that's what you want. No problem. I'm going to give you what you want. There's one problem. When it shows up on your doorstep, you're not going to like it. You want to worship those other gods? No problem. I'm about to release them. Have fun with that dance. Because they're going to want to dance with you. And when they do, it will not be fun. That's what you said you want. Okay, I'm going to let you have them. No problem. I'm going to send an angel down there, and he's going to release them out of the pit. That's what you said you want. I'm going to give you what you want. So he said, oh, you want meat? I'm going to give you meat. So you get to verse 32, verse 33, it says, while the meat was yet between their teeth, before it was consumed, the anger of Yahovah was kindled against the people and the Lord struck down the people with a very great plague. Therefore, the name of that place was called Kibaroth Hetavah because they, watch this, they buried the people who had the craving. What's in your heart's gonna come out. You either deal with it, lay it at the foot of the cross, you give it to Jesus, you get rid of that garbage. Or it will, it, its ugly head will come back up one day. There's no way to keep that buried. What's in the heart's going to come out. That's why Jesus said it's not what goes in the mouth that defiles you. It's what comes out of the mouth because what comes out of the mouth, what reveals what's in the heart. We want meat. We're sick and tired of eating this manna you're giving us. No problem. I'm going to give you meat three feet deep. Probably about 60 miles wide. And they ate it. Here's one thing that nobody talks about. These quail that came up just die. Does that ring a bell? Because in the Torah, he says, you don't eat anything that dies of itself. Can somebody say, uh-oh. See, they didn't want to follow God's rules. They don't want to follow God's laws. 
They want to do their own thing. They want God's blessings. They want all the, they want the candy and the ice cream. They don't want any responsibility. And they really don't want to walk right before their God. They just want all the goodies. They want to be away from the plagues. They wanted to be out of Egypt. They wanted to go someplace where they can make some money. They wanted to be free from all the other problems. But hey, I don't know that I want to eat your food. And so God goes, no problem. I'm going to give you what you're asking for. You already said out of what came out of your mouth that you don't want to follow my rules. So I'm just going to give you three feet thick of meat, about 60 miles wide, and watch you gorge yourself on it. And it's going to kill you. Now then, let's jump to the New Testament. We'll try to wind this down. You get to 1 Corinthians Paul quotes this problem in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 6 to 13 says, now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it was written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. That's the story about Balaam. We spent a lot of time talking about that. He will come up again, trust me. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble, here it is this story, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Remember the anger anger of the Lord burned against them and he started to consume them immediately? the, The destroyer started showing up, just started to kill them. Then you got the Eldad and Medad story. In other words, the plagues were breaking out and people were dying. Then all of a sudden you got these two witnesses got all this stuff going on. You got God's people saying, we want to follow you. And then God throws all this meat out there. And the ones that ate it and died are the ones that had the craving. They had this deep craving in their heart. Craving for what? Egypt. We want to go back to Egypt. God, we, in other words, God, we appreciate you saving us. But is it okay if I still live the way I used to live? In other words, I want to get into heaven, but this obedience stuff, you know, what, what, what is that anyhow? God's presence with us, and he will not be present with us when we're living in disobedience. It's just that simple. It's really just that simple. Now watch, we're going to read our Bible in context, which means we're going to keep reading. This is amazing, because there's a passage here that we love to quote. We love to quote this in the church. We really do. And we quote it out of context. Verse 11, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our, what? Instruction. It happened to them as an example, written down for our instruction. Hmm. On whom the end of the ages has come. Would that be considered us? So written for our instruction upon whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Uh Uh-oh, there it is. It's pride. A greedy heart. 
a self-centered heart. It's people that are more concerned about themselves than about God and what God wants and about God's people. They were self-centered, more concerned about themselves, more concerned about what they were going to get out of the deal. This is where it says, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as common to man. Anybody here ever hear that quoted before? We hear, hear that quoted a lot, right? Oh, I know, I know you got this sin in your life, brother, but you know, hey, it's going to be okay because no temptation is overtaking you, but such is common to man. And God's going to give you a way of escape. Anybody ever hear that quoted? Hear it quoted all the time, right? Out of context. That's saying, you know, if you got this inclination to go do something, God's going to give you a way to overcome that. You just got to, I don't know, pray harder. You need to have more, I don't know, oomph. You need to have more, you know, desire. You, you, you'll get past it. No, you're not. Not without a surrendered heart. Not without a surrendered heart, you're not going to get past it. And guess what? The problem is we don't realize that all this stuff was written in the Scriptures for our instruction so that we would see what they did and not do what they did. That's what it's saying. This temptation you're dealing with is the same one they dealt with. Read your Bible. Don't do what they did. If you got a pride issue, kill it. Or God will. Amen? Amen. No temptation is overtaking you, but such is common to man. God is faithful. Watch, even when we're not. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. He's not going to let something hit you and blindside you without you seeing it coming. How is he going to do that for you? Read your Bible. <laughs> it is just that simple. Read your Bible. Pray, read your Bible, repeat. It's just that simple. Pray, read your Bible, repeat. Just keep doing that. This is where it says, no tempt... Uh, it says, but with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. What's the way of escape? Following him. Wherever he goes, that's where you go. Whatever he says, that's what you say. Whatever he's doing, that's what you do. You follow him. You don't go where he's not there. Amen? So now let's get to this, and I'll close this down. Revelation 11. We just went through Revelation before we started following the, the Torah portions. Remember us studying that? And in Revelation 11 is where you have the two witnesses. Where do the two witnesses come up? In the middle of the, in the story. It starts at the start of the tribulation period when what is happening? Plagues and all kinds of war and famine and all this stuff going on and God trying to get everybody's attention. And he goes, and I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will what? They will prophesy. What were the what Eldad and Medad doing? Prophesying. What do we know about these two witnesses? Nothing. We don't know who they are. We can speculate, but we don't know who they are. Eldad and Medad, that, that's all we really know about them is their name. Why would God do that? Well, because we're sheep and we need pictures. Because what has happened will happen. Here it is again. <clears throat> These are the two olive trees and the two, here it is, lampstands. I want you to see this connection here with these two witnesses 
in this story, in this portion we're reading. He goes, who are these two witnesses? They're the two olive trees. They're the two lampstands that are standing before our God. Oh, my goodness. Well, how did that portion start off? <coughs> Aaron, this is what you do with the menorah. It's going to be in the Holy of Holies, the holy place, what? Where God dwells. You starting to see this connection? And if anyone would harm them, what? Fire pours out from their mouth and consumes their foes. These connections are interwoven all through here back to this passage of what happened with the people of Israel. What happened? They were enemies of God. They belly ate. God heard them and fire came out from him and consumed them. These witnesses are doing the exact same thing. If anyone would harm them, this is how they're to be, this is how they're doomed to be killed. They will have the power to shut the sky. No rain may fall for the days that they are prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. It's absolutely amazing. Here's what's so unbelievable because in this same chapter in Revelation, it makes a comment. It's one of those comments where we read it and we kind of go, yeah, well, I mean, I don't really, really kind of understand that. Uh, but okay, and I thought Jeremiah hit it, but whatever. It's the same weird thing of the Ark of the Covenant going out before them, and we just kind of go, I don't know. Look at this, verse 19. Then God's temple in heaven, which would be what? The tabernacle, after the, the, the tabernacle was made after the, the pattern of the temple of God in heaven. It was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. Yeah. There were flashes of lightning, rumbling peals of thunder, and an earthquake, and heavy hail. Why is all this important? We believe that Yeshua is the Son of God. Amen? Amen. He came and he died on the cross for our sins. He came for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He's going to bring all 12 tribes back. And as Paul says, we've been grafted into this story. And it's all going to, the, the first exodus happened. There will be a second exodus that's going to be global. <laughs> We're given all these pictures of how God d dwelt with the people of Israel and what happened with them. And the issue is, it was put there in the Old Testament for you and I to learn from so that we would not do it again. If it gets so bad, no, when it gets so bad that God will drive us into the wilderness, there will be no place for grumbling. There will be no place for pride. In this same passage in the Old Testament, it talks about Moses, that he was more meek than all the other men on the face of the earth. There's also the section in there about Miriam and Aaron also complaining about Moses because he married that Cushite woman. You got Miriam and Aaron, Joshua, the people of Israel that have walked through the Red Sea, the list goes on and on and on, and people still complaining. 
God literally said, Moses, you, Aaron, and Miriam, come here. Get up here. We have a talk. God calls out Miriam and Aaron. I can pour out my spirit on whoever I want to. But of all the men on the earth, I talked to Moses literally mouth to mouth, face to face. You didn't think it odd that you would speak against my servant? Miriam comes down with leprosy and has to be cast out of the camp for seven days. Once again, and I don't know how many times I've read it, but once I'm reading it this week and I went, what? What did he just say? Moses is crying out to God for Miriam. And God says, if her own father had spit in her face, would she not be shamed for at least seven days? Therefore, put her out of the camp for seven days. What was he saying? I'm her dad and I just spit in her face. Not good. This is Miriam. Aaron, Joshua, the other leaders. Here's my point. We claim we got Jesus. <clears throat> We're all good. We got no worries, right? Oh, of all people, we should be scared to death. Because that is the spirit of pride. I got Yeshua. I don't have any worries. At least I was smart enough to ask Jesus in my life. At least I was smart enough to understand that all the Bible applies to my life. Watch out. Because that spirit of pride will come back and bite you in the rear end. And it will not be good. God will have none of it. He's looking for people of a broken and contrite heart that love him more than anything else, willing to serve him more than anything else, want to bring glory and honor to his name more than anything else. Even when all we're eating is manna and dragging a tent around East Texas in August. It wasn't pleasant for them. Don't think it'll be pleasant this next time around. I know I say this a lot, but it's just like it's everywhere in the Bible. I, I keep running into it almost. It, the pages are dripping with it. And God said, listen, there's going to be this other exodus. It's coming. And in the same way, I brought them into the wilderness of Egypt and I purged the rebels from among them. So I will meet with you face to face and purge the rebels out from among you. And that one is still to come. So we need to learn, right? We need to be humble before our God. There is no room for pride. There is no room for pride even in our biblical knowledge. It will come back to bite you if that's the case. He wants us to be humble before him, to love him, and to give him everything because Jesus died on the cross for us. He was there with them in the wilderness. He's been here since the very beginning, people. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There was nothing that was created that he, Yeshua, didn't create, and he holds every single thing together by the power of his might. And this same Yeshua is coming back to get us. Amen? 
But we should be humble and remember, if it was not for His grace and mercy, we'd still be in Egypt. But He loves us, and He's calling us out. Wow. He's showing us things that most people aren't seeing because they're listening to sermon sound bites. I'm sorry, I used to do it. Where you just cherry pick passages and give a 20 minute talk about how you can feel good in God and how He's gonna bless you and give you stuff. And you can pack a building with that garbage because it's, it's witchcraft. It's treating God like a Ouija board. And I'm telling you, a day of reckoning is coming. And <clears throat> so we need to purge our own hearts is what I'm getting at. And we, we can't be prideful about anything. Uh, but God is showing us this stuff, and I'm sitting here going... We're in the little church over here in Roy City. And I honestly believe with every ounce in my being. I've been a believer since I was a teenager. I've studied the Bible my whole life. I've never studied it harder than I have in the last four years. It's never made more sense than it does now. And I go, God, if this is all true, and I know it is, why? Why me? Why us? Why here? I mean, why? And I just go, I'm just going to get up tomorrow and, and, and hit it again. Because I don't know, but I, I do know the God that loves us, and He is awesome. His name is Yahovah. He's the one true God. He's the God of all gods, the creator of the universe. He's showing us things to prepare us for a day that's coming. And this pre-trib rapture stuff ain't going to happen, folks. I'm just telling you. You can't prove it from Scripture. You can prove it through theology, but you can't prove it from Scripture. And God has never operated that way. And He said, I'm going to do it again the next time the same way I did it the first time. And he's calling us out so that in those very hard moments, we can shout as loud as we can that our God is God. And walk across dry ground, possibly all the way to Israel. Now, all of us here get teary-eyed and go, man, won't that be awesome? There's one problem with that scenario. You're going to have to be staring at the ocean with an army trying to kill you behind you. And have enough faith to say, I'm walking and watch the water part. Miracles are great. It's just the problem is you need a miracle when it shows up. Very trying. Uh, but I know that that will also be God's process of getting, I'll say it this way, America out of me and more of Him in me. God is good, amen.